0: Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. Well, 2017 has certainly seen a few changes. And this includes a few new faces around the offices at the Center for Defense Information and POGO. And one change I'm particularly excited about. Mark Thompson, late of Time Magazine, joined our staff in March. He now writes a weekly column, the unimprovably titled Military Industrial Circus. Mark first began covering the military in 1979 when he came to Washington as a correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This is back when local newspapers used to actually have their own correspondence here in Washington. He rose to prominence there with a series he wrote exposing a design flaw in Huey and Cobra helicopters, built by the Fort Worth-based Bell Helicopter. He found that the main rotor blades in certain conditions would scrape against the center mass that held and spun the blades, and this could eventually cause the mass to break apart. It doesn't take an aerospace engineer to know that if the rotor blades separate from the helicopter, the helicopter is going to crash. It's actually believed that 250 troops were killed in crashes caused by this design flaw beginning around 1967. And the army and Bell Helicopters knew about it for years without fixing it until Mark laid bare the problem for the world. For this, he received the Pulitzer Prize in 1985. After a stint with Knight Ritter newspapers, he moved on to Time Magazine, where he spent 22 years as a senior correspondent. During his career, he has covered the height of the Cold War-era military, the peace dividend of the 1990s, and now the post 9-11 military. He brings a great deal of depth and experience to our shop. I, for one, particularly enjoy chatting with him and bouncing ideas around during our weekly meetings. He has had an interesting career that I was surprised to learn almost began by accident.
1: Dan, I covered the military beat by default. I never was in the military. I have some relatives who were in the military. My father-in-law was a CB for 35 years. But in reality, when I came to Washington in 1979 for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, there was a bureau chief, and he covered Jim Wright, who at the time was the House Majority Leader, a very important and powerful person. And the number two person in the bureau, that would be me, covered everything else. And at that time, that was uh, defense because Fort Worth was the home of the F-16 production line, Bell Helicopter, Texas Instruments, LTV, Vought Aircraft, a lot of other defense contractors, but I also covered the law, and I covered oil and gas, but then, lo and behold, the Star-Telegram, in the days that newspapers were making money, got rich enough to hire a third person in the Bureau, and Cindy Skrzicki covered all the business stuff. So if the bureau chief was covering the house majority leader and Cindy was covering business, that left defense for me. And almost by default, starting in the early 80s, I went to defense pretty much full-time.
0: Okay, so your career now spans, what, six administrations, is that right?
1: I can't count that high. (laughs) My first defense secretary was Harold Brown. I remember covering him a little bit uh, in the Jimmy Carter administration and of course the first big one was Cap Weinberger who was Six or seven years, a defense secretary, and was a lot of fun to cover, and then on and on up through Rumsfeld, Gates, Leon Panetta, and uh, into uh, the end Hagle. of the Ob- yeah Chuck Hagel, the end of the uh, Obama administration. Last
0: quarter, yeah. So in that time, what uh, what differences have you noted uh, with uh, uh, different de- defense secretaries?
1: Well, actually, I think the interesting thing for me as I reflect back on this is it doesn't break down so much by administration or sect but it broke down, especially for reporters, into what kind of world the national security arena was. And when I began, it was the Cold War. It was the Cold War for more than a decade of my beginning of the career. And because I was working for a paper that was very hardware-centric, we really cared about the F-16. Because, you know, half of my readers built the F-16. And so I would go to every hearing where it was likely to come up. How many were they going to make? Was the Senate threatening to cut it? Was the House going to build 240 a year? You say numbers like that now and you're you're incredulous. But indeed, they were almost that high for quite a while. Um, But then, when the Cold War ended, um, the threat of thermonuclear war, if it didn't go away, at least... Everyone took a a breath of fresh air. There was a sense of a peace dividend. There was a new world order that the first President Bush was talking about before, of course, Saddam Hussein got involved. But at that point in time, and I'd say that ran from roughly 91 to 2001, there was a big push to opening up the military to more people who are Americans. Uh, you can remember when Bill Clinton came in, he wanted to allow gays to serve. That was the big issue that eventually exploded and ended with uh, Charlie Moskos and Les Aspin coming up with the don't ask, don't tell compromise. The same time we had um, many new openings for women. Um, I can remember when you are a reporter in the Pentagon for a long period of time, you know which service does a better job dealing with the press than others. And I can remember the Air Force issuing a press release telling us that Sally Jane, or whatever her name was, was going to be their first fighter pilot. The Navy basically said, who cares? Here's a helicopter in the Pentagon parking lot. Get in it, we're helicoptering you over to Andrews Air Force Base, where four female flown F-18s will be landing in 50 minutes. And we all went there, and it obviously the Navy carried the day, uh, but that was that middle period, and that existed until you know 9/11. 9/11 changed everything, obviously both for the military, the nation, the people of the country, as well as for reporters who were trying to track those changes.
0: Okay, you mentioned Casper uh, Weinberger as a, as a standout in your in your career. Uh, what made him so such an interesting? Uh, interesting person to cover.
1: Well, first of all, he had been a journalist at Harvard, and so all of us journalists always like journalists. I mean, he was cap the ladle when he was running the Pentagon. Um, he was behind the president's uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, otherwise known as Star Wars. Um, he was an interesting guy, not that he was a good or a bad defense secretary, but he plainly had the trust of the president, and you find out very quickly that a deaf with that sort of welded nature to the commander-in-chief, everything just runs more smoothly. I mean, I can think of, um, you know, beyond him. You know, Dick Cheney, when Dick Cheney came in, he had never been in the military, um, and uh, he had to lay down the law really quickly to get the attention of not only the press, but through the press, everyone who worked for him. And it was interesting because his first press conference dealt with the fact that, number one, on my first day at the Pentagon, I got lost looking for my personal elevator. I couldn't find it to get down to my car. And number two, a, uh, an Air Force uh, Chief of Staff, uh, General Larry Welch, he argued, Cheney did, that Welch had been freelancing on the Hill about the new type of uh, missile technology for ICBMs. Um, many people believe that was not the case, but Cheney laid it down so firm and so effectively that everybody started saluting him a little more crisply in the wake of that and I think it set the tenor for a, uh, for a defense secretaryship that in hindsight looks pretty good.
0: Can you describe some of the trends that you've, uh, that you've noticed, some of the national security trends that you've noticed uh, during throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to reflect back over 40 years and realize early on That when Norm Schwarzkopf gave that famous briefing in Riyadh, I think, yeah, in 1991 in the first Gulf War, he said, this is the luckiest man in Iraq crossing this bridge. And then, you know, a split second after the fellow's vehicle crossed the bridge, the bridge blew up. That was a laser-guided bomb. You know, laser-guided bombs in primitive forms had started in Vietnam. Um, By uh, the 1991 Gulf War, they were a lot more accurate but it wasn't until after that, in the 93-94 frame, that we got JDAMs, the Joint Direct Attack Munition. These are simply tail kits. You bolt to the rear end of a dumb bomb and it turns them into a smart bomb. All of a sudden, missions that would require a lot of airplanes with a lot of armaments, now you only need one airplane with one armament. There was a sense that this weapon would be revolutionary, and in some ways it was, but I don't think it was as revolutionary as people think. I mean, if, this, if, if a smart bomb can be made out of a dumb bomb, and you can just push it out the rear of a cargo plane, well, why are we still buying F-22s, F-35s, um, the B-21, the new bomber? A lot of people, perhaps foolishly, or maybe perhaps naively, thought that technological revolution of that nature would uh, yield a sea change um, to coin a phrase um, in war fighting, but that didn't happen. And as we have seen time and time again, you will get into arguments with your air force friends all the time about the power of air power, whether it's the air raids um, in the Balkans, whether it's the uh, the bombing runs done before the hundred hour war in 1991's Gulf War or whether it is, you know, the ongoing campaign against ISIS today in Iraq and Syria, where they have dropped a lot of bombs. It's it's not, not a real lot of bombs, and many Air Force people are upset, feel that they haven't been able to unleash all of their power, and that is why ISIS continues, in some ways, to be the problem. But the notion that you can win a war from the air is one that I've paid a lot of attention to. And I must say, you can't occupy ground with bombs. It takes boots. Yes. And that, you know, obviously, from our perspective, the ability to, um, you know, take and hold territory it can't be done from the air. And, the, and just on the other side of the ledger, you know, the forward presence of the Navy, As I have um, flown and sailed and ridden uh, with U.S. military forces, um, the uh, presence, they call it forward presence in the Navy, that the Navy has in various ports and seas around the world, um, to me, does seem to exert a calming influence. It does seem to reassure nervous allies in this region or that region, and that is um, a concern as the Navy shrinks how how much can you spread these around, and are we spreading them around in the right way? Is a twelve billion dollar aircraft carrier planes not included the smartest way to do that as opposed to smaller, more nimble ships
0: right well. The, the U.S. military definitely has a technical obsession, I think, is to put it mildly even. What do you see as some of the, the benefits or, or pitfalls of this?
1: Well, the benefits and pitfalls of technical ob- obsessions are that, hey, the military admits it. That's why we have a nuclear triad. Um, forever, I can remember reading 30, 40 years ago in Aviation Week in Space Technology, The Soviets have found a way to detect our submarines that carry our nuclear missiles, our boomer submarines, and they're going to take them out in the event of war. Well, of course, thank God, we still have our bombers on the runways and our ICBMs in the silos. Um, So, number one, the military is cognizant of the risks of technology and that very rarely do you hear someone in the military say the phrase silver bullet because it doesn't exist, especially in war where no war plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, So they're aware of that, but that has never stopped them from reaching, and you could make the argument, from overreaching. When you look around the world today, when you look at what upgraded F-16s can do, um, I mean, you've really got to argue hard that an F-35 or an F-22 is needed. Listen, if we can fault our leaders anywhere, it is the assessment of risk. Now, it's the military's job to assess risk. And to do that, you need a seesaw. And to make the seesaw work, you need a fulcrum. Where do you put the fulcrum? Do we decide We're going to have to win every war in 100 hours 99% of the time. Oh, no. Well, maybe we'll have to, you know, win all the wars in 100 hours only 40% of the time. Once you start making those calculations, you can justify anything and you can decide not to buy anything. Um, But that's a political decision. It's not a military decision. The military, to its credit, is like a young whippersnapper reporter, which I used to be. You know, they are the hard chargers. You've got editors and you've got political leaders who'll say, whoa, boy, whoa, boy, slow down. You don't need that. No, don't, and that's, you know, give Dick Cheney credit. He canceled the A12. He tried to cancel the V22. Uh, Those were both cutting edge technologies. He didn't think that they were needed in his politically judgmental sense. And unfortunately, in today's world, where fewer and fewer people on the Hill, number one, have military background. Number two, be, if they don't have military background, they tend to be from areas heavily dependent on either bases or defense plants. Right. It warps that political decision-making process. So you've got lawmakers, many of whom are guilty, and tend to cut the military slack because they weren't, you know, a sergeant in the army and be able to say, oh, that's baloney. They don't have the standing to say that. And when all you've got are the Chamber of Commerce types, and I'm not going to name any cities, uh, Fort Worth, Newport News, um, you know what what's left on that table to make the political judgments. There's a, a key element missing. There's a key element of skepticism. And so, as I'm saying about the F-16s, those planes are good for another 20 years, easy, against 95% of the threats that the U.S. will face. So the question becomes, okay, what do we do about that 5%? And the answer may not be the F-22 or the F-35. The answer may be, oh, maybe we don't go in with manned aircraft. Maybe we use missiles. I mean, just like the JDAM was supposedly going to revolutionize air warfare, well, so were the t the long-range cruise missiles, which also saw their first use in the 1991 Gulf War when we were stunned as they flew by the Al Rashid Hotel in Baghdad and going, whoa, that's pretty amazing. Um, so yes, everyone in uniform is eager to get their fustus, the mostus. Um, we can't always do that and it's up to uh, not only military people but their political leaders and citizens as a whole to say hey do we really need that is it going is that that important and frankly when i look around this country and i see uh, rusting bridges and collapsing airports and rail systems that don't work i just wonder to what degree we've got the uh, balance right because i must say as someone who's flown in an F-16, ridden in an F-1, uh, M-1, uh, been on all sorts of ships, they are very well built. When you when you climb, if you're in the middle, I can remember being in the Gulf of Oman in the middle of the night, climbing onto the USS Fox, which wasn't one of our newer uh, cruisers, but later going on in the USS Kidd, which had been bought with turbine engines for the Shah of Iran, but then you know what happened to him, and we got it in our Navy. That technology was amazing. And just as a reporter and the sailors around me. You have great confidence when you have hardware that really works, and of course the problem always is, the fancier the hardware, the less likely it is to work, and that's why so many American troops love the AK-47, because it's simple, easy, reliable, and cleanable, when the M16 ain't always so much.
0: Yes, that is very true. Well, so, I always see this this technical bias as, uh, I guess, a it, it's kind of the go-to, it's kind of the go-to argument. Whenever any kind of a problem pops up, the instant reaction is, all right, what technology can we throw at this problem and see if we can solve it? When maybe there was a much simpler, less technologically uh, Uh, heavy, reliant uh, solution that could be applied in that situation. Do you see that as an issue?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think, Dan, it's uh, it's a good point. Number one, you can either uh, think smarter or you can spend more. Now, obviously, it's always a mixture. It's never a binary choice. But if you pay attention, as I have for a long time, to uh, contract actions, to what the military is interested in, I mean, every day they're issuing contracts to figure out What comes next? You know, we are almost in arms race with ourselves in some ways because, yes, you want to be on the cutting edge, but once again, it gets to political judgment. I'm not arguing that our knife shouldn't be sharp, but it shouldn't be a machete, or will a cleaver do? I mean, it's all of those judgment calls. and, And too often today, if you opt for the smaller cleaver, instead of the huge machete, you're deemed weak on defense, you're not supporting the troops, when in reality, and many military people will tell you this, our over-reliance on procurement sucks so much money out of o operations and maintenance that, you know, our tankers aren't driving as many miles as they should, our pilots aren't flying as many hours as they should. And I'll tell you what, The hardware may be great, but it ain't the hardware that makes the system work. It's the guy or gal on the stick or behind the wheel. And as we shortchange um, O&M to support, you could say bloated or maybe just excessive procurement budgets, that the true software, the flesh and blood of the American fighting man or woman is what gets hurt and then that wonderful machine doesn't work as well. And, and that's sort of a, you know, penny wise and pound foolish approach.
0: I would tend to agree. So what would you say has been the highlight of your military, repertorial career to this point?
1: Oh, I like the to this point bit. Um, you know, uh, it's neat, as some are covering defense from Washington to go out to the field, whenever I'd go out to see the troops, Fort Irwin, Fort Polk, uh, anywhere around the world, and just to talk to the troops who had never spoken to a reporter. You know, you speak to military people in Washington, every day they speak to reporters. Their answers are somewhat predictable. You go out and talk to an E-2 or a a sailor at the tip of the spear, and I always liked that. Um, Frankly, since 9-11, covering a lot of the uh, mili- the mental woes of the U.S. military the with the turnstiling deployment um, and what the country can do to make our military men and women more whole afterward um, to me is, number one, a real big challenge for the country and, number two, an important story for a reporter to tell simply because you know, I did, a, I did a story once early after 9-11 on an RPG that turned three soldiers into amputees. But everybody can see that. There's an acknowledgment of the price of war when you go to Walter Reed and you see these guys struggling to become as whole again as they can. But on the mental front, um, it's a much more difficult thing to do. These are the invisible wounds. Um, some people are amazingly resilient, they can go through anything, it doesn't phase them. Other people with a much lower level of trauma break. We don't know why. So I think the big challenge is trying to figure out why, and if you can't figure out why and prevent it, how do you um, make these people better? And and those are some of the stories I've enjoyed doing, especially since 9-11 on this beat.
0: Okay, so I know you've f- had the opportunity to fly in an F-16, mm. and you just told me that you got to ride in in an Abrams, in a tank, mm. which was better, and there's a right answer to this one. Uh,
1: well, there wasn't much turbulence in the F-16, so that was better. But no, I, I mean, I did not pull nine Gs in the number one tank. Uh, this was at Fort Irwin, but uh, uh, no, I, I mean, that's another thing, too, the military services outsiders look at them and they sort of see them as like the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees and, you know, these teams that never cooperate. Well, they do cooperate. Um, It gets back to the public's perception of the military. The public thinks of the military as a monolith. Um, And what's so bizarre about that is when you add up the folks in uniform, their families, the defense contractors, their families, you're talking 8 million people. That's a city the size of New York. And just like New York, it's got good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. If you want to know what's going on in the Navy, you ask the Army. Um, That kind of thing. Um, And as a reporter, your job is always to go in and ferret out information. And it doesn't often come from the place where you think it comes from. It comes from the person on the other side of that tennis net. And it is a big fallacy for a taxpayer, for a voter, or for just someone interested in how America works to think of the U.S. military as this, uh, as this block, as this single-minded thing, either dedicated to war, dedicated to peace, dedicated to nation-building. It's not. It's a fascinating uh, thing to cover. It's a fascinating place to work based on those I've spent much time with over the years. And um, by and large, they do a very good job for the country. Now, maybe the country sends them off on a wild goose chase, but that ain't the military's fault. Colin Powell would always say, you know, we're just a toolbox. You know, you're the carpenter. Figure out what you
0: want to use us for. And I think that's right. You can read Mark's column published at the beginning of each week and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, Pogo does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help Pogo and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier. The Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at Pogo. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.